Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to take a, a brief hiatus from our study in First Peter. It won't be long, just maybe a few weeks here so that I can address a, a subject that I think is very pertinent for us as a church, and that is, what does the Bible teach regarding the leadership of the local church? And my motive for this series is both theological and practical. I'll share with you the practical towards the end of the sermon, but let's begin with the theological. Theologically, one of the most important or, I guess, essential things of a strong, healthy, God-honoring local church is biblically structured and biblically qualified leadership. Every church is a reflection of its leadership. The effectiveness of any church is directly related to the godliness of its leaders. Godliness and effectiveness go hand in hand. Sadly, however, I think the issue of church leadership or church government, as it's often referred to, is one in which many Christians give little or no thought. And to many, it seems that the leadership or organizational structure of a church is really as relevant to them as the color of the, of the carpet. It's really not that big of a deal to them. But we need to realize that how a local church is led, how a local church is governed, is a really, really, really big deal. It's extremely important. And so the first question that we need to ask ourselves is, does the Bible clearly delineate or articulate how the local church is to be led and governed? Alexander Strzok, a name you might be familiar with, he's a man who's been faithfully pastoring and eldering a church up in Littleton, Colorado, and he's uh, provided a lot of great resources for the church today uh, in this uh, genre of church leadership and elders and deacons, and, and, uh, and, and, and I find his books very helpful. And probably the book that put him on the map is called Biblical Eldership, An Urgent Call to Restore Biblical Church Leadership. And this is what he said. Quote, many contemporary scholars say that the New Testament is ambiguous or silent regarding the topic of church government and conclude that no one can insist upon a biblical model of church government for all churches because the Bible doesn't. He goes on, he says, to hear some scholars speak, you would think that the Bible doesn't say a word about church government. He actually included a, a quote from one seminary professor who expressed this view most concisely, and I quote, it appears likely that there was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age and that the organizational structure of the church is no essential element in the theology of the church. Well, when it comes to the subject of ecclesiology, which we know as the the, the theology of the church, and particularly the, the subject of church government, it is not uncommon for systematic theology books and Bible colleges and seminaries to present several different forms of government that they say are found in the New Testament, and they present them as all equally viable options which you can choose from, or ideally you just blend them all together. 
Well, there are three basic forms of church government. Based on your experience in the local churches that you have been a part of over the years, I'm sure you've all experienced uh, every one of these. Um, On one extreme, you have what's called pastor rule, where the pastor is the king. Uh, The the church is led like a monarchy, and what the pastor says goes. Um, That's kind of uh, where where the pastor has all the authority, and uh, he serves as the CEO of the church. Uh, The other extreme is what we would call congregational rule. Uh, where the congregation uh, plays a part in leading the church. In fact, um, it, it's like any good, you know, American, right? We love a democracy where we all have a vote and, and the majority rules. And so you have congregational rule churches. You have pastor rule churches. But there's also a third form of church government, one that I think fits squarely in the middle, and that is what's called elder rule where a plurality of godly men lead the church through the process of unanimity, which means that they pursue um, all being of the same mind, the same heart, striving together for the work of the gospel. In fact, even the elders don't vote, and they don't uh, make decisions based on the majority. They base it on unity. In other words, if, if they don't all agree about a decision, they don't do it. They wait, they stop, they pray more, they study more, they seek more counsel. I would say these men function not as a CEO, they don't function as good Americans who love democracy, right? They, they focus as shepherds. They function, I should say, as shepherds. Now, this is not just a theological or the- theoretical topic for me, uh, because I've had some experience in this realm, uh, experience and experience I'll never forget. When I was candidating at different churches around the country looking for a place to go be a senior pastor, when I got kicked out of the nest by the senior pastor that was over me years ago, and I was the youth pastor, he says, it's time for you to go be a senior pastor. I said, I don't want to be a senior pastor, I want to be a youth pastor. And that's what I thought I was going to be for the rest of my life, that I was just going to be still preaching to teenagers at 54. That's what I am right now. But uh, thankfully, the men around me said, no, Ken, you need to go be a senior pastor. And so I began to candidate at different churches around the country. And one of my standard questions that I would ask, as they were asking me a lot of questions, I had a lot of questions for them. And one of my standard questions was, how is your church or how is this church governed? What is the leadership structure in this church. One church responded by saying this, and I quote, we are elder rule, but the congregation has the final say. Obviously, that was a bit confusing to me and caused me some concern because I saw that as an inherent weakness in the leadership structure of that church. Well, nevertheless, I decided to visit that church and had a series of meetings over the course of the weekend that I was there. And in the very first meeting that they arranged for me with the elders, they asked me if there was anything I didn't agree with in their constitution and bylaws. And so after I had read those, obviously, um, in preparation for that meeting, and I was very upfront with them, and I said I thought it was unclear who was in charge of the church. Because in this section of the 
constitution and bylaws, it looks like the pastor has the final say, and then, and then in this section, it, it, it seems like the elders have the final say, and then over here, there's this thing called a general board, which was elders, deacons, and trustees uh, that seem to have the final say, and then uh, in this section of the document, it looks like the congregation has the final say. And they actually admitted that the founding pastor had intentionally set the church up that way based on what he had learned in seminary. But there was these different models, these different examples. And and the best case scenario was just to kind of blend them all together. And in my mind, it wasn't blending them all together, it was blurring them all together. Big difference, right, between blending something together and blurring something together. And so I told them that if they had called me to be their pastor, that I would desire to lead them in a more biblical perspective over time. And look at what the New Testament actually taught about church leadership. Well, they did call me, and within the first year, as I was working through that process of helping them understand biblical church leadership, the church began to unravel at the seams And in my opinion, its ultimate undoing was the result of an ambiguous leadership structure. Because when push came to shove, no one knew for sure who had the final say. And no no one knew who was in charge, and so they all tried to be in charge, and they all tried to have the final say. In fact, one group was so insistent that they had the final say, and they didn't get it, that they decided to sue the church. So they could have the final say. That sad scenario, I think, serves as a good example that when various forms of government are blurred together, it just muddies the minds of everyone in the church. And a lack of clarity results in a lack of unity. And so that's why when we started Lakeside, I wanted to make sure the leadership structure of this church was clearly defined from a biblical perspective so there will be never any question, any confusion who was in charge. And who has the final say? And it's not me. And it's not you. And it's not even the elders. We all know, based on the Bible, that God has the final say through his word. Amen? The Bible is the final authority here at Lakeside Bible Church. What the Bible says goes. Not what Ken says goes or the elders say goes. What the Bible says goes. And the Bible says there is one person in charge of this church. Who is that person? Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church who ultimately rules over the church. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Speaking of Christ's authority overall, Ephesians 1, verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, talking about God the Father, putting all things under the feet of Christ, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we know the picture in the New Testament is is that we are a body, like a human body, a physical body, and, and, and Christ is the head the most important part of our body. 
and controls everything else that happens in our body. Paul says something similar in Colossians chapter 118. He says he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So Christ, as the leader of the church, mediates his authoritative rule in the church through humble servant leaders who are entrusted by the Holy Spirit with the responsibility of overseeing and shepherding Christ's flock and who will be held accountable by Christ himself when he returns. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and this is, a, I think, a foundational passage here when it comes to church leadership or any kind of leadership for that matter. This is where we get the principle of servant leadership. Hopefully you're familiar with that phrase. Um, That is something that we talk about a lot amongst the pastors and elders uh, and the deacons here at Lakeside Bible Church. It's something we pray about um, because we think it's important that we that we uh, consider ourselves servant leaders. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 41. Mark records, hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. You say, hearing what? Clearly, he's talking about the 12 disciples here. James and John, plus 10 equals 12. Go back to verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. As if that wasn't a presumptuous, arrogant request. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? So he, Jesus humors them. They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. In other words, we want to be your right-hand and left-hand man. When you sit, they were, they were expecting Jesus to go into Jerusalem, overthrow the Roman government, set up his kingdom, sit on a throne, and they wanted to be the guy in his left hand and the guy in his right hand. His two most important disciples. And of course, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with a baptism which I am, which I am baptized? In other words, you don't even know it's what's going to happen here. I'm not going to reign on a throne. I'm going to die on a cross. Are you willing to die with me? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. In other words, you are going to die for the cause of Christ. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Why were they indignant? Why were they upset? Why were they hacked off, if you will, at James and John? Probably because they wanted to be in those positions just as much as they did. And who are they to go and ask to be in those positions? You say, well, where do you come up with that conclusion? Well, if you remember, not... um, Long before this scene, 
as the disciples were walking along, they were discussing which one of them was what? The most important. And so there was some jockeying for position amongst the disciples as they were following Christ. And so this really came to a head when James and John just decided we are just going to go for it and ask Jesus straight up if we can be his right and left-hand man. And so the other disciples were angry with them. And so Jesus saw this as a perfect opportunity to teach his disciples about what true leadership looks like. Verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles or leaders of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, you, you know how the rulers of this world function, how they operate. They, they lord it over their people. Uh, they, they exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your, what? Servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be slave of all. In other words, leadership is not about how many people are under you, but how many people you're under. In other words, how many people you serve, not how many people serve you. And then, of course, he gave himself as his example, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So again, this is where we get the principle of servant leadership. Now, with that as our foundation, I want you to look with me at the numerous passages in the New Testament that clearly mandate and model that Christ intended his church to be led and governed and ruled by a team of exemplary Christ-like under-shepherds called elders. And this is going to be a bit of a Bible study, and you might kind of get your, have your fingers worn out when we're done here, but I just want you to see I'm not just making this stuff up. There's plenty of evidence in the scriptures to, 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 to show to, or to, that reveals what I'm, the point I'm trying to make here. Let's start in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 11, verse 30. Here we're introduced to this church that's planted in in Antioch as persecution was increasing and the Christians were being scattered and pushed further and further out away from Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of the persecution. Some arrived in Antioch, they shared the gospel, people got saved, they planted a church. And then notice verse 30, and this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the, who? Elders. And we're just going to see this word pop up all over the place. Chapter 14, verse 23. Again, Paul and Barnabas ministering in different cities. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Chapter 15, 
Verse 1, so, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas had some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and who? Elders concerning this issue. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Again, we're seeing a transition here. There's still apostles around, but the elders were being brought on, brought on board, if you will. Verse 6, again, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And then look at verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles' greeting. So it was the, not just the apostles who wrote this letter or signed this letter, it was also the elders. Chapter 16, verse 4, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And one of the clearest references in chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, this is the elders, uh, the, the beautiful farewell address that Paul gave to the elders in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus there. Chapter 20, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. In other words, there were no apostles at the church. There was apostles serving in the church in Jerusalem, but there were no apostles serving in the church in, in Ephesus. It was just elders. And then verse 20, 28, I love this. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It's one of the most important verses in the New Testament about the role or the function of, of an elder. Then let's move on to the epistles here quickly. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So as he was addressing this letter to the church in Philippi, he not only addressed the congregation, but he specifically addressed two groups of people, the overseers, which are the elders, and the deacons. Hold on to that thought. We're going to get back to that idea of, of the deacons. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Again, Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica here. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Note that word charge. Who's in charge around here, right? Well, apparently there were some leaders who were laboring diligently, and Paul and the congregation acknowledged that they had charge over them in the Lord. They were the ones that gave them instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Then, of course, we have 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul lays out the qualifications for elders and deacons. 
verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, again, that's another interchangeable word for elder, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. We'll continue to look at those in more depth next week. But then verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sort of gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Again, we'll get back to that, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. Chapter 4, verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. This is where the Presbyterian church got their name. If you know anything about the Presbyterian church, they are elder-led, elder-ruled. That's their church government, right? Um, Again, another interchangeable word with overseer, presbyteros here, presbytery, okay, uh, episkopos, and poimen. These are all the, the elder, overseer, uh, and, and pastor, shepherd. They're all interchangeable words used throughout the New Testament. But then look at chapter 5. We're still in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. There's another little section here about elders. First Timothy 5, 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit spirit of partiality. In other words, don't let the elders off the hook either. It's not just the the congregation that that needs to be held accountable to live a, a godly life and to repent of any sin in their lives. It's also the elders. So don't don't be partial to the elders, in other words. And we I think the reason I believe that is notice the next verse. He's still talking about leadership here. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And then in Titus, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, there's another list of qualifications. This was written to uh, Titus who was overseeing the churches on the island of Crete. And he said, for this reason, verse 5, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, he goes goes on and and lists very similar, gives a very similar list than he did in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then Hebrews, we're almost done here, Hebrews 13. Not done with the sermon, just done with this list of verses. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you. You say, well, who's that? Who, Who are my leaders? Well, he defines them as those who spoke the word of God to you. 
In other words, again, we see this idea of the, 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 the leaders are the teachers, the preachers. And considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. In other words, again, it's, 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 it's um, assumed that the leaders would live exemplary lives who could say to the congregation, follow me as I follow Christ. And everybody's like, cool, I can do that because you're respectable. I can tell you're pursuing Christ-like. You're not perfect, but I can tell you really want to be like Jesus and I want to be like Jesus, so I'm okay following you. Hence all the qualifications, right? That the, the, the elders and the deacons are to set the example for the rest of the church to follow. I'm going to say this in the next couple of weeks. That list of elder and deacon qualifications is not like, oh, well, I'm glad that's just for the elders and deacons, as if it doesn't apply to you. No, I think it's God's desire. Everybody in the church would fit that description. It just so happens that the elders and deacons are supposed to model that as the entire church pursues being above reproach. We're right there in Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Again, a great text about the, the role of a church leader. That they are, have been given the responsibility by God to watch over your soul. And they will have to give an account to the Lord someday. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. How about James 15? James, excuse me, James 15. There is no James 15. Just making sure you guys are awake. Uh, James 5, excuse me, James 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. In other words, there's an assumption, James, like, hey, if you're sick, there's got to be some elders around. Call for them, right? Because that's every church has elders, right? Call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. And then lastly, 1 Peter chapter 5. Man, the more I study 1 Peter, the more I love 1 Peter. It's got everything. I mean, it's got everything in here, everything you need, right, for our journey, uh, our pilgrimage here on earth. It's even got, in my opinion, it's my favorite passage about elders in the whole Bible. Because lest anyone get the impression that there is this heavy-handed, I'm an elder, I'm in charge around here, you do what I say, you submit to me, right, perspective, uh, well, that just gets blown out of the water by this final passage, 1 Peter chapter 5. And by the way, if there was any individual who could have had that strong-arm mentality, it would have been who? Peter. And yet, notice the work that the Spirit of God had done in his life over these 30, 40 years after Christ had returned to heaven, left him to lead the other disciples he says, therefore, this is chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. Again, writing to churches all over Asia Minor, and he's, he calls out the elders. He knows that there's elders in those churches, and he's calling out the elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, 
and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, and here it is, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. In other words, an elder should not lead and get people to follow him through the crack of a whip, but through the example of his life. Big difference between a rancher and a shepherd, right? Ranchers tend to drive the flock, right, to get them to where they want to go, whereas a shepherd is out front leading the sheep. Well, I trust you would agree here that the pattern for church leadership, church government that's laid out in the New Testament could not be any clearer. And the, the concept of a, a plurality of elders or a, a team of shepherds, a, a shepherding team, jumps out from the pages of Scripture. I mean, you can't miss it. Again, Alexander Strzok said this, quote, the New Testament offers more instruction regarding elders than on other important church subjects such as the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Day, baptism, and spiritual gifts. We've got some pretty clear teaching, right, on the Lord's Supper and, 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 and baptism and spiritual gifts, right? There's not as much confusion about those things, but there's even more instruction in the scriptures about elders, John MacArthur, in a great book he wrote years ago called The Master's Plan for the Church, said this, quote, proper biblical government by elders is the only pattern for church leadership given in the New Testament. Nowhere in Scripture do we find a local assembly ruled by a majority opinion or by one pastor. So I think it's without question that God intended each local church to be autonomously led or governed by a group of elders. The word autonomous simply means um, that you don't have anyone else over you. Um, there's a lot of denominations that set up a hierarchy where you know there's local church leaders and then there's other church leaders who are above those churches and then there's other leaders above those churches, right, above those leaders and there's this hierarchy that goes all the way up to the top. The Pope would be one example of that, right? And the hierarchy that goes down to the different cardinals and the different priests and things like that. You don't, you don't see that in Scripture. You see independent, autonomously led local churches. Now, they may have interacted with another, like the church in Ephesus, the elders in the church of Ephesus, and the elders in the church of Thessalonica. They may have been buddies, they may have communicated, they may have talked, but, but no other church had authority over the church in Ephesus, no other church had authority over the church in Thessalonica. They were independent, autonomous, local bodies of Christ led by local elders. And those elders were assisted in their work by another group of godly men called, you are sleeping, deacons, thank you. And deacons 
are uniquely gifted and qualified by God to serve alongside the elders in order to relieve them of the temporal matters of the church so they can focus on their spiritual responsibilities as shepherds of the flock. Turn to Acts chapter 6 where we see what I would call a, a prototype of the deacons. The, the deacon the, or the, the office of deacon wasn't officially um, defined, I think, at this point in Acts chapter 6. We don't see that until later in the book of Acts and particularly in the epistles here where things got more and more defined and refined. But we see a prototype or, or an example of the need for a group of guys who would serve like deacons. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were not being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So this was a good problem to have, right? The church was, was exploding and people were getting saved left and right. And they were oftentimes getting together, gathering for meals, right? And eating, sharing food together, having massive potlucks and... And when that was happening, some of the, 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 the widows were being overlooked or left out. And it looked like there was some um, favoritism perhaps being shown, but maybe it was just mismanagement. Somebody needed to get involved, roll up their sleeves, figure out there was a problem, let's solve it, and let's move on. So the 12 summoned the congregation, this is the apostles, uh, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, it's obvious that there needs to, there's a problem here that needs to get solved. But, but we, we need to stay focused on what God has called us to do. We don't want to neglect our responsibility in the Word of God, to handle the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to, to teach and disciple the Word of God. And so, therefore, he said, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, whom we may put in charge of this task. Again, the question is, who's in charge around here? You've got that mentioned about the elders in 1 in First Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 5. You've also got it now of the deacons here in Acts chapter 6. But, verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So again, I don't know that these were officially deacons, right? That role had not been as clearly defined as it is in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, elders and deacons, uh, as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 through 13, the qualifications of deacons there. And granted, there is a limited amount of instruction in God's word regarding the office of deacon. And I think that's why churches are sometimes confused about the role of deacons in the church. Um, and, and you go to, you know, go to any church and you'll potentially hear about deacons, but they'll be all functioning in, 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 in different ways. Even in like-minded churches, um, that, that would believe everything that I'm teaching this morning. They, they function perhaps a bit differently. And I think churches go to one of two extremes in regards to deacons. In some churches, the deacons are really exalted as the executive board of the church. And 
frankly, the deacons are actually serving as elders. Um, but they want to somehow maintain a distinction between the pastor, he's the elder, and then you got all these deacons, right? But they're actually serving as a, as a team and they're all really elders. Or they can be placed in competition with the elders. In other words, you have the elder board and you've got the deacon board and they work independently of one another and they're there, the elders are there, um, excuse me, the deacons are there to provide a check and balance to the elders because we live in America. And that's how the American government was set up, right? There's checks and balances, and there's the House of Representatives, and there's the Senate, and then there's the you know, Supreme Court, and so there needs to be checks and balances, and so um, crazy things can happen. Like one, I remember years ago, a guy telling me about a church where the deacon board was suing the elder board. And I think these kinds of church problems are caused by a misunderstanding of the role of elders, if you get the elder's role right, then the deacon's role naturally falls into its proper place. The diaconate, as it's called, is not a ruling or governing office. It is a serving role that complements the leading role of the elders. It's kind of like a, a husband and wife relationship where the husband is the one who's in charge, right? He has the final say, if you will, but the wife is there to provide uh, tremendous support and counsel and wisdom um, so that the husband can make wise decisions and good decisions that will be a blessing uh, to the whole family and not just serve him. And, and hopefully, I think in a good marriage, you would agree that most of the decisions that are made are made mutually. They're, they're, the decisions that are made, it's not just the husband making all the decisions, it's the husband and wife coming together, praying together, studying scripture together, counseling one another, submitting to one another, and they make the decision together. I think the other extreme is when churches demean the office of deacon. Some maybe exalt deacons too high in their estimation. Uh, the other, I think, error is to demean the office by treating deacons as nothing more than glorified janitors or sanctified groundskeepers or financial managers. I think churches that view deacons like this are missing out on the real ministry that God designed deacons to provide the church. And again, that's one of the burdens of, of Alexander Strzok, who has not just written books on elders, he's also written books on deacons. One of my favorite is called The Minister of Mercy, the New Testament deacon. Just the title in itself really, um, I think, expresses, wow. I never thought of a deacon as a minister of mercy. But this is what he says in that book. And I quote, he says, we must ask ourselves why God would demand that deacons meet specific moral and spiritual qualifications and undergo public examination like the pastors of the church if all deacons do is wax floors or mow lawns? It's a good question, right? Anyone in the church or even people outside the church can do these types of jobs. We have somebody outside the church who mows our yard every week. They're not even a member of our church, right? My heartfelt burden is to help deacons get out of the boardroom or the building maintenance mentality and into the people-serving mentality. Deacons are to be involved in a compassionate ministry of caring for the poor and the needy. 
The deacon's ministry, therefore, is one that no Christ-centered New Testament church can afford to neglect. Christians today must understand the absolute necessity for and vital importance of New Testament deacons to the local church so that the needy, poor, and suffering of our churches are cared for in a thoroughly Christian manner. One of my greatest joys is to watch our deacons minister to people in our church, in our community, who have financial needs from time to time, and how they just come alongside them, and they don't just, you know, willy-nilly write a check and say, here you go, but they sit with them, and they talk with them, and they, 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 they sit on the ash heap with them even, uh, and, and mourn with them about where they're at in their life and what has caused them to be in this financial difficult place, and then, and then also seek um, information, get information. Hey, tell us about how things are, and so let us give you some counsel um, about maybe how you can uh, manage your finances differently than you have in the past, and, and in the meantime, let us help you. And um, I'm so grateful that there's so many of you in our church that are so generous, and that oftentimes we get checks come in, I'm told, that, that have on the memo, benevolence. Like you just want to make sure that there's money in our benevolence account so that deacons can minister people in our community that come and literally knock on the door uh, during the week and say, hey, I don't have any gas to put in my car or I can't pay my electric bill. And, and these guys come alongside these people and it's a beautiful thing to see. Again, Strzok ends, he says, indeed, deacons are to emulate our Lord's example of humble, loving service to needy people. Our Lord highly esteems the deacon's work for it is essential to the life and witness of God's church. Again, we'll talk more about deacons in the weeks to come here. I told you this was all for two reasons, both theological and practical. So theologically, the Bible plainly and simply establishes a two-office system of church government. You've got elders, and you've got deacons. There's nothing else in the scriptures. So we'd be wise not to add any more offices for whatever reason we might think we would want to or we could benefit from having trustees or having someone else be a part of a, a larger board of people. We also see in scripture that, or I guess what we don't see in scripture, are any limits There's no limits on how many elders or deacons you have, and there's no limits on how long those elders and deacons serve. And again, it's not wrong that some churches set terms, you know, on their elders or deacons that, hey, you serve for three years and then you roll off in a year and then you can come back on a year kind of like, again, where you live in America, like get... We we, we know if we got a bad president, we only got to deal with him for four years and we can get him out of there, Right? Um, again, it was a, a, a system of checks and balances, right? But there seems to be no indication in Scripture that you need to put a limit on how many guys serve or how long they serve. And hopefully, if you do have a, a, a rogue elder, for example, that you're, you're not just sitting there, you know, waiting for, you know, you're, and you're in year two and a half of his three-year term, and you're like, okay, we've got to deal with this guy for six months, No, you address it biblically right then and there. And if for some reason the guy's disqualified himself because of how he's talking or acting or handling himself in the church, well, then he needs to be removed. It's not like, well, time's up, right? You have to wait for his term to end. 
So our goal as elders, based on that, is that every man in our church who has a desire to serve as an elder and deacon or deacon and meets the qualifications of an elder and deacon should serve as long as the desire remains or as long as they remain qualified. Which brings us to the practical part of this message. We as a church have the awesome responsibility to do what we've just studied. And that is to examine a group of men who've been recently selected by the elders as candidates for the office of elder and deacon. And for those of you that have been a part of our church for some time now, you know that every fall the elders and pastoral staff, we retreat for a day or two and we pray together and we plan um, for the future of the church. And one of our main priorities, it's always the first thing on our, on our agenda after we pray, uh, is to take some time to evaluate uh, the men in the church, the up-and-coming leaders in our church, and, and then seek to recognize those who it appears to us that God is called and qualified to serve as elders and deacons. And again, we've already seen this, but the Bible makes it clear that the elders are to take the lead in selecting and appointing um, the elders and the deacons. Um, we looked at Acts 14, verse 23, when they had appointed elders. It was talking about Paul and Barnabas, elders appointing elders. Um, Titus 1, 5, um, Paul commissioned Titus delegated the responsibility as an elder to appoint other elders in every city as I directed you. But at the same time, the congregation, based on what we studied, should be included in the process. We just looked at Acts chapter 6. The apostles said, hey, there's a problem. Called the congregation together. And what did they say? Select from among you seven men of good reputation. In other words, bring us some guys that we can approve of and we can appoint uh, uh, to solve this, this problem. Uh, in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So again, trying to be, and this is where the systematic theology books and the seminary professors say, well, see, there's different models of leadership here. You, in this passage, you see the congregation making the decision. In this passage, you see the elders making the decision, so you kind of have to blend them together. I think it's pretty clear the elders are the ones making the decisions, but they're including the congregation in the process. And the reason for that is, I think, first of all, the people in the congregation are the ones who are required to submit to and to follow the direction of the elders and deacons, and so they need to consider them worthy of their respect. I think also some in the congregation may have information about a prospective elder or deacon that the elders don't have, or they've had some interaction with a prospective elder or deacon that the elders haven't had. And so the congregation's input is critical. 
And again, at the heart of Paul's teaching on the qualifications of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there is a very straightforward command that you may remember I read, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 10, it says, let these also first be what? Tested. Then let them serve if they are beyond reproach. That word tested is that word adaki or dakimazo in the Greek, which is the, the word that was used to describe uh, the process of testing metal to prove that it was genuine. It was also used in ancient Greek literature um, to testing a person's credentials before allowing them to serve in, in some kind of public office. It was like getting, getting, a, uh, getting a stamp of approval, if you will. That's what this word tested means. Get, get, get a stamp of approval. And so Paul applied this analogy to the church by insisting that the character of a potential candidate for the office of either elder or deacon must be thoroughly examined and evaluated and carefully scrutinized to see whether or not they should be approved to serve in that particular leadership position. Which shouldn't surprise us because that's really the standard procedure in our world, right? Before a person is allowed to perform a job that carries tremendous responsibility, requires exceptional skill, requires... um, uh, or, or results in, in serious consequences, or, or, or you know, if they don't do if they don't do it the job correctly, they have to first be tested, right? Accountants, doctors, lawyers, brokers, right? They can only be licensed and certified if they pass a very rigorous test or exam. And I would suggest that if the standards are extremely high for those who have the responsibility of overseeing our health, our legal matters, or our finances, how much higher should the standards be for those who have the responsibility of overseeing our souls and serving in Christ's church? The job of an elder and deacon carries with it great responsibility. It requires great skill. And if not done correctly, it results in grave consequences. So that's why I think God demands that before a man is appointed to serve as an elder or a deacon, he must be thoroughly, rigorously tested to see whether or not he's qualified for the job. And if he doesn't pass the test, then he has no business being appointed as an elder or deacon. And that's what Tim, Paul was saying to Timothy. Timothy, be careful not to lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Again, Alexander Strzok addresses a need in the church. He says, because of the crying need for church leaders, there is always pressure to make hasty appointments, but such appointments create more serious, long-lasting problems. In numerous cases of leadership failure, the real problem is that unfit, unproven men were appointed too quickly to positions of spiritual leadership. Some of you know that by experience, don't you? You saw it go down in the churches that you were at. There was people in leadership that had no business being in leadership. And I think that's why churches, we need to insist on biblically qualified men to serve as elders and deacons, even if such men take years to develop. Because it's better to not have elders and deacons than to have the wrong elders and deacons. (laughs) And so based on this pattern set by Paul and the apostles, working together with members of each local church to select and ordain elders and deacons, there's a little four-step process here 
that we've adopted at Lakeside Bible Church. This is our process. Number one, with the help of the congregation, the existing elders recognize men who have a desire to serve as an elder deacon and who appear to be spiritually qualified. Most of the time, we recommend elders and deacons to you, but there are times when you have recommended elders and deacons to us, that you've come and you've said, hey, what do you think about this guy, or have you noticed this guy, or would you consider this guy being an elder, or this guy being a deacon? That's very helpful, because again, you maybe see things that we don't see, and we're like, hey, you're right, and then we take notice, we're like, wow, you nailed it, that guy is a budding church leader that we need to keep our eye on. Number two, the elders test and examine them privately to determine whether or not they're qualified to serve. In other words, they have personal conversations with these guys and uh, ask them some tough questions and, and just make sure that they feel like they're qualified based on what they know the qualifications to be and do they, knowing what they know about their own life, would they put themselves up for this process? Number three, they present them to the church for their evaluation and affirmation And then finally and fourthly, they formally install, appoint them as elders, deacons through prayer and the laying on of hands. Which, by the way, the laying on of hands thing, that's just not, we don't just do that because it looks cool or spiritual, okay? It really signifies the official commissioning by which the elders entrust a man to God and to the work which God has called him to do. And I think it just creates an observable, personal, tangible sense of responsibility and also fellowship and unity between the men involved in the leadership of the church. Presently, God has provided Lakeside Bible Church with nine elders and 10 deacons. I hope you realize how blessed we are, um, that we're not feeling like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, if you will, to find guys to lead. The Lord has raised up some very competent guys. In fact, just so you know who these guys are, If you are one of our elders, would you just stand for a second just so people can kind of see who the elders are serving here at Lakeside? We always have them stand up at the end of the services to to minister to you, okay? So these are uh, some of our elders. Um, And if you are serving as a deacon presently, go ahead and stand up. Those 10 guys I just mentioned, the 10 deacons, go ahead and stand up just so we can get a kind of a face and a name. Um, See, I mean, these guys just... It's kind of like they all kind of hide under the radar, these guys, right? The leadership just flies under the radar, and that's the way it should be, and you, you don't know until they pop up, right? Somebody makes them pop up. Thank you, guys. You can sit down, but they, somebody forces these guys to pop up. They like to serve behind the scenes, behind, under the radar. So what the elders are proposing is to add four men to our existing leadership team, one elder and three deacons. And so on behalf of the elders this morning, I want to present these four men to you who are candidates for the office of elder and deacon. Our candidate for the office of elder is Chris DeLagula. I don't think we need to ask that guy to stand up. I think we know who he is. And um, more to that story, but Chris has been with us over five years now, and I think it's seven years even. Lose track of that guy, man. But... um, I think we all know he, he functions as an overseer, a spiritual leader. He does it every Sunday for us up here, uh, leading us in worship. Um, it really was more, hey, Chris, are you uh, feeling that call? Uh, has God given you that aspiration? 
um, as it says in First Timothy chapter 3, in this last elders retreat, he said, yes, I think he has. And um, so this was not our first ask with Chris. Our candidates for the office of deacon, and I'm going to have these guys stand up just so you can put a face with a name here. Jesse Flewellen. Where's Jesse at? There he is. Okay, stay standing, Jesse. Jonathan Marsh. A man's always in my peripheral here. And David Taylor. These are three, three men that uh, you probably know, and if you don't, uh, there they are. You guys can have a seat. Now, can I just say something? Don't go up to these guys after she go, hey, congratulations, man. Hit them on the shoulder. As if they just, you know, got elected to be, you know, part of the Congress or something, you know? That, that's not what's going on here, okay? If anything, those guys were shaking. You couldn't tell, but they were shaking when they were standing up there. Because they know what they're putting themselves, they know what they're, they're, they're putting themselves out there for this entire body to examine. And they've humbly accepted our invitation to go through the, a three-week period of public testing to see if they're above reproach in the eyes of the congregation. That's a big deal. To say, hey, I'm curious, do you guys think that I'm above reproach? And if anyone doesn't think so, let me know. Or let the elders know. So they can tell me. So if you have any questions or concerns about any of these men's character, or you know of anything that would disqualify them from serving as an elder or deacon in our church, then we ask you to come talk to us. Don't talk to each other about it. Can you believe they had that guy? Don't do that, okay? Because we'll be coming to talk to you, all right? Seriously, please come let us know. Talk to the elders about it. Or put it in writing if you feel that would be more appropriate. Again, you may have some information about these guys that we don't have. You may have had some interaction with them that we haven't had. And you just need to know that any valid objections or accusations that are biblically based will be considered. Um, but we will also try to discern if this is just simply a personal bias that you might have towards an individual Again, this is not a popularity contest. This is not a political election. It's a testing of character based on the principles of God's word. So if these men receive your stamp of approval as the congregation which they will be serving, then we will officially install them as elders and deacons three weeks from now, February 27th. So, how exciting is that? Um, so be praying. And uh, be an encouragement to these guys. Because again, they're putting themselves out there. Um, lots of analogies come to my mind. I'm not going to say them. But pray for these guys. Pray for us as elders as we continue to lead this process. And then come back the next two Sundays. Because we're going to go back to some of these passages and look specifically at the qualifications of elders and the qualifications of deacons, which will help you as you evaluate these guys. Like, what is the criteria? What am I supposed to do? Well, I like the guy. He's kind of a nice guy. Doesn't have much hair, but other than that, I like him. You know, sorry, I couldn't get past that, Jesse. Um, it's, that's not, it has nothing to do with that stuff. It has to do with the criteria that we're given in Scripture. And so we're going to try to do our best to explain those, that criteria to you so that you can make a, a healthy biblical evaluation and help us in this process. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together.
Thank you that you have not left us in the dark when it comes to how uh, this church should be led or who should be in charge or who has the final authority. It's very clear. And uh, Lord, I pray that those of us that you have called to lead and raised up to lead this church, that we would do it in a Christ-like way, that we wouldn't wield Christ's authority in a harsh, critical, angry, um, confrontive, um, just an ungodly way, but that we would do it uh, in an exemplary way. And Lord, as we as a church seek to follow the principles of Scripture when it comes to uh, approving and appointing new elders and new deacons, that we would be pleasing to you through this process and the things that we think, the things that we say, and the things that we do. And uh, Lord, that you would be glorified. Thank you uh, just for the way you've provided leaders for us in the past and that you will continue to provide leaders for us in the future. And we know you do this all for your glory and for the glory of the name of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.